Peter, I'm going to have to ask you to do a bit of controlling today. That's okay. Well, I hope you, um, hope you were able to, to hear that. Thank you for bearing with us. Uh, but it's always a good idea to just have the word open in front of you, actually, um, to read along, and then also to keep a track as um, whoever is up here preaching it um, uh, sort of expounds it, explains uh, what it is uh, that it means, what it is that God is, is saying to us. So uh, if, you, if you have your phone there, um, if you've got your own Bible, I encourage you to, to, to bring it on a Sunday and, and, and to follow along. This is part two in our series, um, in 1 and 2 Peter, uh, which I've entitled the, the True Grace of God. And this is Peter writing to uh, Christians. He calls them God's elect, exiles um, scattered throughout the provinces who were facing opposition and persecution for their faith. And he begins by assuring them of the inheritance, the future inheritance of eternal life that is theirs in Christ Jesus, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. That is, it is an inheritance that is death-proof, it's sin-proof, it's time-proof. And Peter flags that this future hope ought to regulate our everyday lives. And so our reading today began with, Therefore, therefore, now come the commands. But you need to know that the imperatives of the Christian life always begin with therefore. They always begin with therefore. That is, we hear of what God has graciously done for us in the gospel and only then of what we are to do in obedience to him. Knowing what we know of the true grace of God, how then do we live? That's the question. And the umbrella imperative is to be holy. Right? That's the umbrella imperative. I wonder what comes to mind when you think of holiness. Right? A certain song might come to mind. Some people think holiness is about being legalistic. Others think it is just about being boring. And still others think it's about some spiritual experience. It actually means to be, uh, simply means to be set apart for God. And so um, in Exodus, when uh, our first verse up there, Peter, when God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And likewise, Peter will say of Christians in the next slide, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are set apart for God. If you are a Christian, then you are holy. You are. Uh, but you're also called to be holy. So Jesus himself says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
And years later, Peter writes in, in, in his letter, just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. Now, we know, don't we, that the good news of the gospel is that God has given us what he commands of us. That's the good news of the gospel, right? Christ has become for us our righteousness. He has become for us our holiness. He's become for us our redemption. And yet he also gives us his spirit who powerfully works obedience within us. And so uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, I think I have this one up there, Peter. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Have you ever been unsure as to what God's will is for your life? It's to be holy. It's to be holy. And here Peter instructs us uh, as to how we are to be holy um, in all we do. He says, um, therefore, with minds that are fully sober, that, that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. It sort of starts off like um, a drink driving campaign, right? Stay alert, stay alive. Don't drink and drive. And Peter does expect us to make certain lifestyle choices. But here he simply means that to be holy, we must be thinking clearly. We have to be thinking clearly. In the background there is this idiom uh, used here, which is, uh, something like, gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> gird up the loins of your mind. So in those days, even men had to, uh, had to sort of uh, tuck up or uh, draw up their long outer garments in order to, to work and, and in order to, to run unhindered. And so the language here actually it can be traced back all the way um, to Exodus, right, where uh, God's people are preparing to leave Egypt uh, for the promised Land, And likewise, when it comes to holiness, we are to be ready and raring to go. How? By setting our hope on the grace that is awaiting us. Now, it's not that we haven't received grace already. right? We have. But there's more coming. There's so much more coming. So don't be short-sighted. Be long-sighted. Press on. Press on. But the Christian life is not like one of those car trips where you can get lost, so lost in your own thoughts that you can't remember how you got from here to there. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me more regularly, which is concerning. But no, the Christian life, in the Christian life, we must be conscious and we must be conscientious. We are obedient children obedient children. There was a time when you and I didn't know any better. But now that we do, we are called to holiness, like father, like son. So be holy in all you do. It's a hard calling, but it's also a very high calling. 
And Peter says that it all begins here, right? In our minds. What do you daydream about? What are you daydreaming about right, right now? Because Paul says in Philippians 4, I've got this up here too, Peter. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, praiseworthy think about such things. It starts up here. Peter also instructs us to live in reverent fear. In verse 17 of this passage, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now we think that the fear of God, that, that, that belongs back in the Old Testament. But here it is here. Because the fear of the Lord is always the beginning of wisdom. Actually, to truly fear God is to truly love God. Um, one of my favourite authors at the moment, Michael Reeves, he explores all this in his book called Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. And in it, he writes this. He says, the biblical theme of the fear of God helps us see the sort of love toward God that is fitting. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To encounter the living, holy and all-gracious God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. That's my word of the week. Listlessly means in a way that shows you have no energy, no enthusiasm, unwilling to do anything that requires any sort of effort. No, seeing clearly the dazzling beauty and splendour of God must cause our hearts to quake. One author calls this, the, the, this fear the soul of godliness. It's not a paralysing fear. It's an animating fear. It spurs us on toward love and good deeds. You see, the one that we call our father is also our judge. The Christian life is one of privilege and responsibility. We have a responsibility to develop the character that a loving father desires of his children. And to do otherwise, to, to, to keep on sinning, according to the Bible in somewhere like Hebrews 10, is to trample the Son of God underfoot and to treat it as unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified us and insult the spirit of grace. It's a serious thing. And that's Peter's point, right? He's redeemed us or purchased us at great cost to himself. Peter explains, for it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. It wasn't with cash, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter's point is that we're to live in awe of this. 
and that this was no mere afterthought. It was always God's plan to send Jesus when he did, to do what he did for us. And the logic of it all is that because God first has first loved us in this way, we're called to love one another. Um, in verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you may have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. Just think now of all those who are a part of our church family, those whom you know well, those whom you don't know well. Do you love them? Do you love them sincerely? Do you love them deeply? And if not, what excuse can you offer? What excuse can I offer? So Peter goes on to write, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, you know what's uh, depressing or sad? It's that Peter is assuming that this sort of stuff is happening amongst Christians in churches. And you know what? He's right. Malice is delighting in the harm or misfortune of another. And it includes holding grudges. Deceit is the deliberate attempt to mislead other people. Hypocrisy is actually derived from the Greek term for actor. So literally, one who wears a mask. So in other words, someone who pretends to be what he he or she is, is not. Envy is to long for what other people have, even coming to resent them for it. And slander of every kind is much broader than simply sort of defamation. It's to shoot people with words, whether it's to their face or behind their backs. We're to rid ourselves of all these things if we're to love one another sincerely, if we're to love one another deeply. Instead, believers are to crave pure spiritual milk. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted the Lord is good. Now, Peter's not implying that his readers are young Christians or immature Christians, but that they are to long for spiritual milk in the same way that newborns long for milk. That is, eagerly and frequently. Picture um, a newborn frantically searching for milk. And, And then that look of satisfaction when they find it. But there are many different types of milk on on the market nowadays, isn't there? There's 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 regular, there's 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 the full fat stuff, that's that's the stuff, isn't it? There's 
reduced fat, low fat milk, there's skim milk, there's modified milk, there's fortified milk, there's lactose free milk, there's lactose reduced milk, there's flavoured milk, not to mention all the milk alternatives. Camel milk is an is, is a up and coming thing. So what type of milk is, is Peter thinking of? And I think it's pretty clear that in, in context, it's, it's the living, it's the life-giving word of God. It's, it's, it's the Bible. It's the means by which we grow up as Christians. As we, as we read it by ourselves, as we read it together, as we meditate upon it, it's the means by which we grow up as Christians. And in it, we taste time and time again that God is good. God's good. Time and time again, as we come to his word, that is what we taste. God is good. And, and, and that's key to growing in holiness. Remember, that's, that's the umbrella imperative. The umbrella imperative is to be Holy. Now the challenge for you and I is how do we be holy without becoming holier than thou? Somehow coming to believe that we are morally superior to, to others. That phrase actually comes from an old translation of Isaiah 65 verse 5 where God is angered when we say to others stand by thyself come not near me for I am holier than thou so how do we avoid becoming holier than thou and the answer is by actually becoming holy you see holiness and holier than thouness they're not the same thing they're not the same thing. In fact, if someone is growing in arrogance, if someone is growing in pride, if someone is becoming more self-righteous, in fact, however subtle these things are, by definition, they're not growing in holiness. That's not the same thing. Now, they, those two things, that they get confused, right, when, when we equate holiness with religious activity. Yes, holiness is about obedience, but it's just as much about character. You see, the spirit who powerfully works obedience within us produces qualities such as love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. See, anyone... <laughs> Anyone can abstain from certain sins and sort of set themselves up on a religious podium. Jesus tells us that these, these people, that they've received their reward in full. But holiness is not just about being a naysayer. It's not just about being a naysayer. It's about actively pursuing what is pleasing to God, even when it is costly to you. And doing so by first attending to the log in your own eye. Holiness is not self-righteousness. 
It's Christ-likeness. It's, it's impossible to become both holy and holier than now. To grow in one is to atrophy in the other. So to be clear, again, the imperatives of the Christian life always begin with therefore. See, our salvation is not dependent upon our personal or practical holiness. Christ has become for us our righteousness and holiness and redemption. We do not live under the burden of the law. We live under the freedom of grace. But now that we know the true grace of God in redeeming us from what would otherwise have been an empty way of life, we seek to be, to be the redeemed children of God, of the God who says, be holy, be holy because, because I am holy. Let me pray. God of compassion, you've called us by your grace from death to life and from darkness to light. So enable, enable us to respond to your infinite mercy that we may pursue holiness heavenly-mindedness and willingly spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. Enable us to deny self, devote our hearts and lives to your glory. Stir up within us a proper sense of that work, that great work which you have prepared for us to do in this world. Grant us purity of faith and reality of religion and a sense of the blessing that awaits us at the end of such a life. Impress upon us the infinite value of our eternal reward and stir us up to constant endeavours that having pursued a holy life, we may at last come to such a blessed end. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.